You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. I wish I was a little bit Left taller. Jab Productions present Edge of Sports I'm Radio, I'm where sports and politics collide. And now your host, Dave Zarn. The Schmada Kid. <laughs> Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zarn. Joined, as always, by a man who cut his own hair. There's no joke. He just cut his own hair. Dan Baker, DB man, how you doing? How, uh, why, why'd you cut your own hair? Looking so fresh, looking so clean, Dave. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with it, Dave. He cut his own hair. Um, joined as always by the coach, Kevin Knight. How you doing, coach? Uh, do I cut my own hair? You see that, baby? Yeah, <laughs> smooth, smooth, smooth as sunshine. I gotta dedicate at least one more rhyme. My goodness, that's smooth. Ed Meanmar, how you doing, Meanmar? I'm great. Awesome. We got a hell of a show this week. When we come back from the break, Coach is going to give us his final pluses and minuses from this NCAA Final Four. Thumbs up, thumbs uh, down. Yeah, that yeah. ended with, um, yeah, I think that two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, Gino Origama and Mike Krzyzewski, <laughs> uh, going home with the top honors. Um, and we're going to have a great show this week. We're going to interview the University of Central Florida's National Consortium for Academics and Sports, a very prestigious organization called yes, NCAS. Sir. Yes, sir. Um, we're going to interview their basketball coach of the year. And every year they pick a coach, and they did not choose Gino or Coach K. Mm-hmm. They chose a gentleman by the name of Sean Harrington, who has never won a college or varsity basketball game as a head coach. He's an assistant coach at Marshall High School in Chicago. Now, why did Sean Harrington win this prestigious award? Because he's been an assistant coach while being paralyzed. He's in a wheelchair. So he is an assistant coach at Marshall High in Chicago from a wheelchair, and he was put in a wheelchair when a hail of bullets hit his car, his rental car. It was mistaken for a car of someone who was in an enemy gang in Chicago, and he lay over his daughter while bullets entered his body, and... Uh, Sean Harrington, who was a Division One player at New Mexico State, uh, featured in a small role in Hoop Dreams, went back to coaching. He was coaching before, and he came back. It's a remarkable story. Um, we're going to talk to Sean Harrington about how he coaches 
uh, from a wheelchair. That's what we're going to talk to him about. And we're also going to talk to uh, Russ Bradbird, terrific author, one of my favorites. He wrote the uh, biography of the, of the great Nolan Richardson, 40 Minutes of Hell, among many other books. And we're going to talk to Russ Bradbird about his relationship with Sean Harrington and how they're working together. So does that sound like a show? Sure you does. got it. That's a lot of show right Tell there. Jam-packed. Yo, follow us at Edge of Sports. We'll be back after this. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach. Come in, how you doing, coach? Mommy. Me, Mark. How you doing, me, Mark? Feeling good. I Man, we got a great show this week. We're going to talk to Sean Harrington. We're going to talk to Russ Bradbird. We have so much to talk about. And we've got the baseball season, the NFL draft, WNBA season in front of us. What we don't have, uh, though, is a final bow on what was this NCAA <laughs> Final Four, women's slash men's. Coach, you were a big hit last week with your, what was it, wins and losses, thumbs pluses up, thumbs and minuses, <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs poops down. and burgers. What was it? Thumbs up, thumbs down, All right. Dave. All right. So, and you know what? I might have some serious um, additions to this. Uh-oh. I'm just telling you right now <laughs> because I watched both Final Fours. I As watched I. all the games, um, all together, six games. Yes, sir. And I watched them with a pretty jaundiced eye. Oh, my. Thumbs up. Men's NCAA Final Four. Two great games. Wisconsin, Kentucky. Duke, Wisconsin. One clinker. Duke, Michigan State. Mm-hmm. Thumbs down. Women's Final Four. That's right. Anticlimactic. As UConn crushed Maryland and Notre Dame, although it was a 10-point final, but still it was never in doubt. The South Carolina Notre Dame 66-65 game was a great game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But two, uh, two clinkers, one great game. Thumbs up. I, but I think you have to account for the fact that the South Carolina Notre Dame game in isolation was better than any of the individual men's games. Absolutely not. In my opinion. Okay. Okay. <laughs> in my opinion. I'll explain. Yeah. I could explain why or right. you could continue. No, we could continue. Cause we, continue, we, we, and I'll come back to yeah. it. Okay, because um, I'm going to defend that. Yeah. But basically, I was doing a two for one. Two, two, two up, one down. Let's do versus, it. But anyway, here we go. Thumbs up. Gino Ari Emmer, Coach K. Uh, Gino obviously getting his uh, 10th title. Uh, only three men, Wooden and Phil Jackson, have won that many. Uh, Coach K with his fifth NCAA is amazing in today's climate um, of NCAA hoops. Remember, John Wooden at UCLA had a 23-32 and 32 team tourney uh, during his wins. He needed only f- to win four games, and in his, in his last championship in 1975, he had to win five to, uh, to, to, to win a title. And he was always seated in the West – because they didn't do, they didn't move teams across the country like do they. So it was a whole different NCAA tournament. Thumbs down on the coach's uh, tip. Don Staley, South Carolina. Bo Ryan, Wisconsin. Uh, Staley was down one, called timeout, had the ball in front of her own bench, 30 feet from the basket, uh, sideline inbounds, 12 seconds left. They never even got off a shot. Uh, you can show that the last mm-hmm. heave, I don't even call that a shot. No, no, of course. Muffet McGraw uh, inserted a different player and Switched defenses, and Carolina didn't adjust. That mm-hmm. was not good. That was not cool. Bo Ryan. I don't m- view that as on Staley, but go ahead. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to address okay. that, too. Okay. I've- uh, Bo Ryan, for his press conference and TV interview, blaming Loved the refs. It. So good. Uh, and speaking out about rent a player, that was just wrong. Best part of the Final Four. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> and by the way, and, and D.C. Dan will, will, will attest it. this was not the first time that Ryan – basically showed classlessness in losing. When Maryland beat Wisconsin, 
um, here uh, at, at, at Maryland, Bo burst into Turgeon's press conference and said, hey, uh, you guys want to ask me questions? I got I to catch a plane. And that was not classy. And then what he, the meltdown. Bottom line, he got out coached by Kay. Thumbs up. Mariah Jefferson, UConn point guard, had 15 points, five assists, four steals versus Notre Dame. She should have been the MOP for the tournament. Yep. Brianna Stewart, the best player in women's basketball, uh, uh, college basketball, was the MOP. But even she, in the announcement uh, um, celebration, said that she thought Mariah was more deserving. She didn't, in so many words, she kind of acknowledged that Mariah could have just as easily been the MOP for no, the game. No, she said it explicitly. Did she? Okay. Yeah, she okay. said it explicitly and then she said she wished she could share it. Um, I thought Mariah Jefferson was the breakout star. Yes, sir. But I think that Brianna Stewart, I'll, I'll call it the Mateen Cleaves Award. I think it's very impressive. <laughs> no, she twists her ankle. Yeah. And she's clearly in a lot of pain. And, she's st- and defense has always been the criticism of Brianna's game. And so she goes eight points. I might be off by a little, but 16 boards, 15, five blocks. 15 rebounds, yes. 15 boards, yeah. five blocks. I mean, that's right. an incredible, yep. like, my ankle is disgusting. She even said, she said, my ankle looks disgusting. Oh, yeah. And so it's like she went and she did it a different way. And that's yep. just like when Mateen Cleaves busted his ankle in the finals against Florida and gutted it out, yep. even though uh, Mo Pete had a better game, Cleves right. got the award. Right, I mean, and, and, and again. But Mariah Jefferson was the breakout star. Yeah, that was the holy crap absolutely. star of absolutely. the tournament. Absolutely. On the men's side, thumbs up Tyus Jones. Uh, he was sensational when it mattered most, 19 of his 23 in the second half. Frank Kaminsky, who matched Kentucky's bigs and refused to lose to the Wildcats in the semi. Love him for that. And then he dropped 21 and 12, 21 points, 12 rebounds on – probable number one pick Okafor. Grayson Allen of Duke, who was playing six minutes a game, plays 21 minutes, scores 16 points to carry Duke uh, until Jones took over, which is why, Bo, that's why you lost. Your guards, well, anyway, thumbs down, I'll get to that. South Carolina All-America Tiffany Mitchell got the ball on that inbounds play in which I was talking about with uh, with the coach. Uh, she refused a pass. She was double teamed, 11 seconds, dribbled around the perimeter, uh, and then just didn't get a shot off. You got to trust your. You got to trust your teammates in that situation. I, um, I'm disappointed in her on that one. Uh, just a tough spot. Thumbs down. Wisconsin backcourt. Not only did he get torched by Jones and Allen, they shot five for seventeen and clearly wilted under the spotlight and athleticism of the Duke guards. Thumbs down. Willie Cauley Stein mm. walked off the court without shaking hands with the uh, Wisconsin players, and this was after a performance of two points. Yeah. Scoring the second basket of the game and didn't score again. And allowing the three forwards, Hayes, Kaminsky, and Decker to combine for 48 points. And he's supposed to be an all-world defensive stopper. All-world perimeter defender, too. But Thank he didn't you. do it. Thank you. Thumbs down to NCA and TV that make these players and coaches come to the press room minutes after the toughest loss of their athletic lives. But even in doing so, then the media doesn't ask the tough questions. Kali Stein was there. Nobody asked, why'd you walk off? Um... And Calipari too. Nobody asked Calipari why didn't you, why did you, why did you sit the Harrisons down to start the second half? They had mm-hmm. brilliant halves in the first half and then set up. Thumbs up. Doris Burke on the women's telecast. Grant Hill and Bill Raftery on the men's side. They were terrific. All were yeah, all were worth listening. All were informative and enjoyable and entertaining. Uh, Hill is the best of the Duke network of analysts, by the way. This you know there's seven of them that were on his. <laughs> Billis, who is good. Jay Williams, who is dry. Bad Air, who is terrible. Mike Jaminski, Jim Smartville, and Alan Ab- Abdelnabi are all capable. Thumbs down. Allah Abdelnabi. Yeah, Allah Abdelnabi. Yes. I'm sorry, yes. Thumbs down. 
Once again, and I, I got it last week, I got to do it again, the NBA Cats, get gone. Their time is coming next, in the next couple of weeks. Barkley and Smith and nails on the chalkboard, irritant Reggie Miller. Get him out of here. I don't want him on my NCAAs. And then in the post-championship game wrap-up, Barkley couldn't name a player, which I said last week, and was just a cheerleader. And Kenny Smith pronounces uh, uh, Grayson uh, Allen's name wrong. Um, why are they there? They, and they are there. I find a decision by CBS to put them on the NBA, on NCAA telecast as condescending, patronizing, lazy, and insulting as NBA hoops and college ball are two different animals. And we are given, we are, they are there and given a pass Coach. because of their name, rec- name recognition. Strong take. Lastly, and I got to throw this one in the day before I give it to you, the refs. And I'm going with a thumb, uh, a thumb push because the refs made critical mistakes. Yes. The shot clock violation on Hayes in the Kentucky game, mm-hmm. one. And then, obviously, they didn't get the right on Winslow in the Duke game. The finger. But here, finger. I got to say this. But all the controversy about the refs was overblown. They, the best teams on those particular night won the games. And if you think that refereeing of basketball is the hardest sport to officiate, get over it. If you think it's the hardest sport, well, it is over. the hardest. I'm sorry, I said that oh, wrong. It is, it is the, the hardest, hardest sport. by far to it. officiate. Because I am over uh, making excuses for officials. Um, so I was with you for a second. <laughs> Look, no thumbs up to Bo Ryan for saying what the truth is, which is that basically that Mike Shashevsky is a preening hypocrite, uh, talking <laughs> talking about uh, the glories of his boys. And he, he Mike Shashevsky said. I've never had a team that's meant more to me in 40 years of coaching. I'm like, what? what? You're going to know these guys for three months. Are you kidding me? Your three stars are freshmen. What are you talking about? What are you? You don't even know. I, you know what? If Mike Krzyzewski was here right now, I would uh-huh. be like, what's Shalil Okafor's middle name? Tell me that. I'm just curious if you know. What is Justice Winslow's major? He doesn't know these people. Give me a break. Go, Dave, go. So I, I, have, I have no love for Duke whatsoever. Other than that, they an acceptable job, Mr. Coach. Oh, please. Give me a break. <laughs> my, my, uh, we my. might have more to talk about this later. This is Edge of Sports Radio. I'm Desire. We got to go to break. We'll be back after this. One, one, two, Don't one, two, move. Three, Dave Zirin will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Yo, you are back on Edge of Sports, and I'm just still shaking my head over some of what Coach was saying with his thumbs up, thumbs down with the NCAA, because <laughs> you missed a couple big ones, Coach. Uh-oh, I did? You forgot. Thumbs up for being a white rioter. As they found out in Kentucky, you could yeah. riot your heads off, and as long oh. as you're not doing it... <laughs> Uh, in the name of a social justice right. issue, but you're doing it in the name of being mad that Kentucky right. lost. You right. can take selfies with cops <laughs> right. if people yeah. saw that picture. Well, see, riot is a black term, see? So, ah, yes. so, so when it happens... What do you call uh, it? White uh, people uh, do it. Uh, uh, a, distur- a disturbance. Yeah, yeah altercation. when you're lighting couches yeah, right, right. on fire. Um, but, and, but you also <laughs> forgot someone who I think was actually the big winner from this tournament. And let me explain. And Uh-oh. this actually has real stakes. Uh-oh. And this is a reason why I'm talking about this. I want you to imagine... A public debate between the kind of person who would call Ferguson protesters scumbags and the kind of person who had the courage to look at what was going on in Indiana and saying America always had a racial problem. Now we have a homophobic problem. 
any form of discrimination, you have to check it. Imagine right. a debate between those two people. Imagine a debate between someone who defended Darren Wilson killing Michael Brown. Right. Someone praised by the Tea Party Network for, quote, speaking the truth and calling out the left-string media. A debate between that person. Mm-hmm. And the debate between someone who said, typically in the South, that's where I'm from, all of these rednecks hide behind the Bible. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons the South is behind in everything. They always hide behind the Bible. It's strictly about discrimination. This debate would be against someone who is called the Black Rights, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement a sham, and someone who's enraged the right by saying the whole rednecks hide behind the Bible. Mm-hmm. What a debate that would be. That debate would be between the same person, Charles Barkley, right. and Charles, <laughs> Charles Barkley. Right <laughs> now, I'll be honest with you. I think people spend way too much time analyzing. Charles Barkley. Like, there was a fascinating 9,000-word article that was on ESPN about Charles Barkley's history and politics, and it was it was very good writing, and it was immaculately researched, but I'm reading it, and I'm thinking to myself, does Charles Barkley deserve 9,000 words about mm. his political formation and what? what makes him tick? I think Charles <laughs> Barkley, you know, he's... I think he largely speaks fearlessly and largely speaks instinctually and largely speaks without thinking of either the ramifications or the repercussions. And I think he's someone who, on a gut level, has a great deal of anger and resentment aimed at poor black people. And on a gut level, is not homophobic. And I celebrate the fact that he's not homophobic. And I think his dismissal and contempt for people who have been protesting police brutality needs to be and has been challenged. Now, why am I raising this? Because Charles Barkley is a thumbs-up winner coming out of this NCAA tournament because of the stance he took on Indiana's mm-hmm. laws mm-hmm. and because of just the profile he had hosting this from, from top to bottom. I mean, he was interviewed on CNN. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a massive figure throughout this tour. He was like the winner of this tournament from a media perspective, I think, based on the repercussions and the ramifications. Now, you cross that with the fact that we are all looking at this case of a gentleman by the name of Walter Scott Mm -hmm. who is gunned down in the back Mm -hmm. in North Charleston, South Carolina, gunned down by police officer Michael Slager. And this question will come up about, like, Michael Slager's already been indicted. Like, who is going to rush to defend Michael Slager and turn this, instead of being the Michael Slager trial— to being the Walter Scott trial. Because mm. that was the thing that always enraged me so much during the George Zimmerman trial is that everybody called it the Trayvon Martin trial. It was the mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin case. Mm-hmm. No, it's not the Trayvon Martin case. It's the George Zimmerman case. George Zimmerman is the one who pulled the trigger, and every time these things take place, it's always the dead person who's put on trial mm. when they cannot defend themselves. And you're already seeing this with Walter Scott to some degree. Although you've also seen a lot more defensiveness on behalf of the right wing because they actually, I think they see this also as an opportunity to rehabilitate the police department by showing that there can be justice for something so blatantly unjust. Ben Carson, running for president, conservative, he called it an execution, the killing of Walter Scott, which is a strong word. And then he also said that that we should be, um, I think the words he used were really disgusting. It was something like, we should be excited for the police departments to have the opportunity to show that they really stand for justice and not what people say. It, was liter- it wasn't like we should be hopeful. It was like we should be excited. 
And I think he was like, you know, Ben Carson, a brilliant doctor, not at all a polished politician. Uh, I mean, I think that's what a lot of them are thinking. It's like, we have to do this and do it in a different kind of way. Now, is Charles Barkley going to say something about this? That's a real question. Because, you know, the, the thing I also kept thinking when I was looking at Walter Scott was, if not for basketball, that or wrong place, wrong time. I mean, he's so famous, you can't really say this. But that could have been Charles Barkley. Mm. I mean, the thing that, that you look at it, Walter Scott, 50 years old, not in good physical shape. We've all seen the video. Two bad knees, overweight, running away from the police officer at one mile an hour. Police officer calmly pulls out his gun, shoots him dead. Charles Barkley, is he going to say anything about this? And here's a bigger question, too. We've talked a lot on this show about athletes in the Black Lives Matter movement. Will any athletes say anything about this? That's a question I have. NBA playoffs coming up. Major League Baseball season starting. All right, is anybody going to say anything? And I don't know the answer to that because it's been – you certainly have had players still speak out over the last several months. But I don't think there's any question that there's been a quote-unquote chilling effect since the killing of the two police officers in New York City. Like that's been kind of a dividing line between players showing this and then clearly somebody, maybe their management, maybe their friends, maybe themselves – saying, yeah, maybe you don't want to align yourself too closely with this movement. But the thing is, is that this movement's not going anywhere Mm -hmm. because it's going to pop up every single damn time something like this takes place. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the videotape changed the story dramatically because it had been written up in the newspapers already Mm -hmm. and was written up as uh, trying to take his taser gun and all, like, just blatant lies printed as facts. Yes. And it also printed Michael Slager... Uh, the officer, Michael Slager, I'll say his name a million times, Michael Slager, as someone who is like a former veteran, mm-hmm. Walter Scott, you know, someone with a criminal record, you know, as mm-hmm. if any of that is germane to the fact right. that a man was shot in the back mm-hmm. all those times. So, I don't know, Coach, I'll ask you first, like, do you think, if just if you had to do a prediction, tea leaves, do you think any players are going to speak out Dave, about you, this? I was coming back over the net to you because you speak to players every day more so than I do, and, and on all levels, especially the professional level. I have no idea. I hope. But, you know, with the playoffs coming in, you can see these guys locking thing. into the playoffs. Yeah. They might say any, maybe some NFL, NFL guys because out of season. Um, but I'm going to throw it back to you. You're, you're in contact with these guys every day. Um, what do you think? What percentage? You want to throw a prediction Mark? down, Mark? I, I I echo Coach. I, I feel hopeful, but I'm not sure. It seems yeah. like a weird timing. It, it, the, the problem um, is that the player I think would most likely speak out right now in the NBA, believe it or not, of everybody, would be Dwayne Wade. And I you were going to say LeBron. No, Wade, I wasn't going to say LeBron at all. I, I think it's going to be Dwayne Wade. Why? Um, because Dwayne Wade is uh, the person who kept speaking out after the killing of the New York police officers. Like He, sh- he was... I think the only NBA player to come out with um, an actual statement, an actual sign. He had Black Lives Matter stitched into his sneakers. Um, but Dwayne Wade, I mean, is he injured right now? I mean, the Heat, I guess they're fighting for a playoff right. spot. It's The timing of that is rough. But one of the and, um, NFL, which of course was so front and center on this, you know, just isn't happening right now. The thing that I think is really interesting is that it exposes just how incredibly deeply and unapologetically conservative institutionally Major League Baseball is. 
Yes. Wow. Because, you know, all the time, I mean, Major League Baseball even put out a statement against the Indiana law, even though they don't have a team in Indiana. <laughs> You're going and, off and, you know, on Twitter about this. Yeah, I was mad about so it. So mad. Because I was mad, not because I'm against someone speaking out against the law, more people, more power, but it's just, it's like so opportunistic Major League Baseball is. Like, even in their statement about the Indiana law, they broke their own arm patting themselves on the back, talking about Jackie Robinson and baseball's history of inclusion, da da da. No. They bathe themselves in this history like it's hot oil and they're in a brothel. They are just covering themselves <laughs> and being like, oh, look at us. Cover us in velvet. We are Major League Baseball. We are the luxuriant emperors of social change when the reality is so different. The reality is that there were 14, 15 owners voting against Jackie Robinson. It was the final vote. I think it was like fifteen to one or fourteen to one against Jackie Robinson joining Major League Baseball. That's a mm. fact. There were quotas in Major League Baseball on players of color until the seventies. That's a mm. fact. Uh, it is a fact that Major League Baseball owners have stood against things like free agency. Kurt Flood had to sacrifice mm-hmm. his career. It was not accepted as a good idea, even though the end result of it has been to make everybody a hell of a lot richer than they would have been if you just had players locked into certain teams. Yet, the end result of all of it is Major League Baseball now being able to say, look how much for social change we are. And it just it makes me want to vomit, frankly. And it's so institutionally right-wing. It filters down to the players. And I don't think you're going to see anything. But that would be the place, I mean, because frankly... Other than people like Mark, who's watching April baseball? You know, who's in four <laughs> fantasy leagues. So, so wait, but you, you, you said that awfully fast. You don't think anybody's going to say anything? Not, he's say not from that. baseball. I said I was most hopeful with Dwayne Wade. I think right. the player could certainly surprise. I think this case is shocking enough. I also think it's muted somewhat by the immediate indictment because mm-hmm. in these other cases, right. the movement was for indictment. Right. right. What about football? Anybody you, you think is going to step to the full forefront? Uh, you in think the offseason, it's a tough lift. I'm not sure. I'd and, love to see it. And players don't talk in the draft. No, that's true. That's real talk right there. But, yo, we got an important show. I'm speaking of the importance of people's lives and speaking of these issues. We're going to talk to Sean Harrington after the break. He's a coach of the year who's done it all from a position of of physical paralysis. It's an amazing story. Mm, Uh, We'll be back after this. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. Boom, we're back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach, Kevin McNutt. How you doing, coach? My man. Me, Mark. How you doing, me, Mark? So good. Um, our next guest, very excited to have him on the show. He was the NCAS Coach of the Year this past year. Did not coach at the collegiate level. He's not Coach K. He's not Bo Ryan. He coached the high school level, an assistant coach. But his story really is remarkable because he's done it after receiving a bullet and having to do it from a wheelchair, and we are talking with him right here, right now. His name is Sean Harrington. Sean, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. How about yourself today? Very well, very well. And we're also joined by a good friend of Sean, someone who coached Sean, when Sean was playing at New Mexico State, terrific journalist, author of 40 Minutes of Hell, the fantastic biography of the great Nolan Richardson, his name, Russ Bradbird. Russ, how are you doing, sir? Hi, David. Good to be here. Oh, great to have you both on. So, first and foremost, Sean Harrington, I got to ask you. I mean, you won what's basically known as the Lapchick Award, Richard Lapchick. It's such a prestigious honor. Um, how did it feel to be recognized and get that award? I'm truly 
totally still in awe. I still really can't believe I won this prestigious award. So I'm still just taking it all in and and counting the blessings along the way because it, it is truly a blessing, one of the blessings that I've seen, uh, one of the many blessings I've received uh, kind of throughout this ordeal. So uh, I'm, I'm real excited, real ecstatic. Um, my athletic director, uh, Coach Dorothy Gate, is here in Chicago, won the same award a few years ago. So just to be being mentioned uh, with her in the same breath as far as getting awards, knowing how prestigious this award is, it's uh, totally awesome. And I should have mentioned you're at Marshall High School, correct? Yes, sir. Marshall High School here in Chicago. Fantastic. Uh, that was featured in Hoop Dreams. And I got to ask you, when you were in the hospital, when, when they told you what your condition was going to be going forward, did it ever cross you mind your mind that you would not be able to coach again? And did you ever wonder, even if the school might not ask you back, did those doubts ever cross your mind? The doubt of coaching again, of course, crossed my mind. I wonder if I would be able to to be the same coach, and and, and I and I have been. But as far as uh, me still being able to coach there, I, that never crossed my mind because uh, the school and the whole program has been so supportive to this whole ordeal. Uh, that was at least from my words, and they also ensured me that uh, my job and my coach position will be there waiting for me when I return. So uh, they ensured me that. How has a post-surgery, post-shooting, how has it changed how you coach, if it's changed how you coach at all? How does it change how you interact with players, how you study the game? Has it, has it affected the way in which you view the game or view the, the young people you're trying to develop? Not at all. If anything, it makes them a little more attentive to me when I'm talking now, as crazy as that may sound. I'm not able to get up and, and along the sideline anymore. It's more along of uh, sitting towards the end of the bench and uh, communicating with the guards is what I do uh, when I'm there coaching games. But as far as my approach and my thought process, none of that has really changed much. I mean, I have to, uh, like I said, maybe just being able to fit exactly on the bench in the, in the in the middle of the kids when they come in and out of games, don't think that may have changed a little bit. But as far as my approach to the game, my thought process to the game, and my interaction uh, with the kids, no, that, that hasn't changed uh, at all. Like I said, if anything, it makes them a little more attentive uh, when I'm talking to them now. And, uh, just another sign of a little more respect, I guess you can say, in a sense. Wow. Russ, I got to ask you, how did you come to know Sean Harrington. I mean, I mentioned the fact that you coached him at New Mexico State, but I know it, it runs much deeper and much longer th- a story than that. How did you come to get involved with Sean? Well, in, in the early 1990s, David, I was living in Chicago and I was writing a scouting newsletter. This is all before the internet really caught on. And, uh, you know, I coached against Marshall when I was a high school coach in Chicago, and they beat us by 63 points. This is a few years before. Sean was coaching, so I was always sort of both intimidated but sort of enamored with the way they had they had an incredible program. If you saw the movie Hoop Creeps, mm-hmm. you you know a little bit about Marshall. And so I started when I was in the scouting service. I saw him play a bunch of times, and just sort of had him in my head. And when I got the job at Mexico State, I thought, here's the guy that I'm going to go after. This is a prototypical Chicago point guard. You know, he's tough and quick and could run a team and thought about passing before he thought about shooting. And so he was my, my first real recruit at New Mexico State when I got the job here. Mm-hmm. And, Russ, your, your connections with Chicago Hoops, I know you had some interactions with, with Tim Hardaway as well. 
give give our listeners a sense of the kind of player that Sean was at New Mexico State. The kind of in, and particularly the kind of intangible qualities and how you think uh, that affects his coaching today. There's a sort of template for a Chicago point guard. You know, they're tough and gritty and quick and very sharp ball handlers. Part of it, I think, has to do with it. It is the Windy City, and because it's the Windy City, all outdoor games are sort of, there's a, a limited outdoor uh, outside shooting that happens. Mm. You know, not known, for the, not known for the three-point shooters, but known for their penetrators and floor leaders. But Sean was very different. I, I've talked about this before, and, and uh, you know, uh, he was sort of able to separate, okay, now we're on the court, and I'm tough and hard-nosed and mean, and then as soon as it ended, and he stepped off the court, he was a really warm and caring and, you know, affectionate in a way that, that many Chicago players are not. He was sort of able to, you know, he, he was, he was uh, I've had people tell me over the, you know, Tracy Dilby, this great Chicago State coach, told me that Sean Harrington has no enemies. You know, that everybody liked Sean. He's a really he was a lovable guy, and so uh, he was with us at, at New Mexico State. Uh, and and but uh, but I think I think those those qualities of sort of toughness, but also sort of caring and and loving. That's that's what our best coaches are, right? in, in in my view, especially our, our our best leaders. You know, he seemed much more much more interested in the kids and the kids' welfare than uh, which I think is sort of the Marshall way. You know, Marshall's a very uh, it's, it's a unique school, I think, because there's a real family atmosphere over there, and there's the weird story right. of how, long, how well the women and the, the women and the men get along very well. They've run the same program, the same offense and defenses for years and years now. Hmm. Yeah, Sean, would your players describe you as lovable? Definitely. I mean, that's something I definitely preach the family quality, quality like like Coach Russ saying. Uh, it's been that way since I've been there, and, and, and just an example of it. Just prior to talking to you guys, I. The guy that I played with in 1991, sending around texts trying to see what, how's everybody doing. Uh, let's get together maybe next weekend and hang out. So we've always kind of had that family quality, and we know about uh, hanging together on and off the court, how that builds our relationships. So me being an alumni, pass that on to the, to the student athletes that are there now. Um, it it kind of goes hand in hand, um, just giving them the martial tradition. Uh, we always, I mean, a lot of people say different things when they come into a huddle and break. But since I've been there the whole time, every time we break, it's always family on three. Wow. Now, so, you, you, and, you went to that school. Uh, you coach at that school. How are the kids of 2015 different than when you were coming up? Oh, it's a, it, it, it's a lot of different times have changed so much. But I've been lucky that I've been able to, uh, I've been able to, uh, I guess uh, kind of adapt, but kind of keep uh, the traditional ways of Luther Beffert around the program as far as the respect and the discipline that comes along with the program and what's to be expected out of them. For the most part, most of the uh, student athletes are, um, uh, are, are judged by different um, – it's to have a different character and, and to be around and be leaders in the community on and off the court because they have some of the more – more popular kids in the community, and uh, you know, use their face and their popularity to kind of to, to kind of uh, just be leaders um, in in the community. But at the same time, like I said, showing them what it means to truly be a martial commander. We definitely have one of the best alumni associations in the state. So, mm. Our Coach Kevin McNutt, who my, my co-host here, he's got a question for you. Hey, hey I, would, I would like both you gentlemen to comment uh, since you have Chicago ties. What do you guys, because me and Dave had a heated battle argument. We always do that. But talk to us about 
the Little League with Chicago, uh, Chicago East, and uh, what you see about that and that well, taking Jackie, your title away. Um, what else? Jackie Robinson went. I'm sorry, Jackie Robinson. And uh, your feelings about that? Well, first of all, when, when that first happened here, I mean, it, it brought so much joy and pride to the city uh, with everything that was going on here in Chicago at the time. Uh, for these young guys to go, it was a, a phenomenal, phenomenal feat. Um, what they did was actually done on the field, and now they're being held accountable for something uh, some adults did, which I don't, which I don't think is fair. I think they, you know, they did what they had to do on the baseball field. I think they should be uh, commended for what they did, but they brought so much joy and hope and, and, and a bright, positive light on the city at the time because it was, it, it was so much um, violence and stuff going on in the city at the time. And for those young men to have to suffer at the hands of what some adults uh, feel in a certain way about a certain thing, trying to take this from those kids, I just don't, I just think, don't think it's fair to no, me. I agree with that. I can't say I, I that's just, fair I just echo, David, I would just echo what Sean says. I, you know, I, I live in Chicago every summer, but I teach at New Mexico State, so he would know much more about it than I do. I, but I would, I would echo Sean's sentiments. Mm. It's, it's the truth. I mean, it really makes me wonder. You know, Sean, the other question I wanted to ask you is I've got family in Chicago, and it's interesting. It's, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around the situation in Chicago. It's something, of course, you're, you're tragically intimate with, and that's the question of violence, particularly street violence. Um, statistically, it was much worse 20 years ago, but it seems like now it's much more focused and intense just in, like, the west side, the south side, in a way that's that's intense. Can you tell us a little bit, like, what is the state of affairs on a street level where Marshall is? Do kids feel safe going to and from school? Does the media play it up too much or not enough? What's your what's what's your opinion on the on the situation in the neighborhood? Well, I mean, for the most part, I think the kids are safe uh, in the neighborhood, going back and forth uh, to school. And uh, as far as that it being worse than it was twenty years ago, you know, they didn't have the trauma unit. At, at most hospitals, so I think the death rate may have been a little more higher, and uh, mm. um, gunshot victim stuff may have been a little more severe. Whereas now, I believe it. If it correct me if I'm wrong, Russ, uh, I believe it's the uh, Ben Wilson law. Ben Wilson was a uh, number one player in the next high school player here in Chicago, and was uh, attended Simeon High School here on the South Side, and was uh, was tragically shot right outside of the school and the hospital when he didn't have a trauma unit at the time, and he uh, basically bled to death. So, with them not having the trauma units now, I mean, I could I could easily be a Ben Wilson story. Had I not gone to a trauma hospital uh, when this happened to me, so I think that's the reason why uh, statistics, murder, and gunshots are down because of the trauma units and things like that. But for the most part, the, the kids feel safe. Uh, at least they say they do feel safe. But uh, I just want to know, you know, I'm a perfect example that. It can happen to me. It happen to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Wow. And uh, just to be a little more aware, and I also speak with my student, with, with the student athletes, uh, uh, just about being leaders in the community. Like I said, it's our basketball players and our coaches are the most popular guys in, in the inner city, uh, on their, in their neighborhoods and outside the neighborhoods. Most of the people know uh, a lot of the kids that play uh, CPS basketball. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, I just think we can use our faces and our voices in a positive way. Are trying to curb uh, some of the violence that's going on here in Chicago. Mm. 
Well, please, please, please do not stop doing what you do. Uh, Sean Harrington and Russ Bradbird, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports Radio. Congratulations on the award, Sean. It's a hell of an honor. Thank you so much. It's a big time honor. Like I said, I'm truly still taking it all in. I'm I'm still in awe that I was recognized uh, for this prestigious honor. I'm definitely honored. No, it's a hell of a thing. Sean Russ, thank you so much for joining us. I promise you I will be following your story as it goes forward and hopefully writing about it very soon as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Have a blessed one. Yeah, this is Edge of Sports Radio. I'm Dave Zirin. Uh, we'll be back after this. Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin. When we're back here on Edge of Sports, Coach, you were talking in the break about the shooting of Walter Scott by Officer Michael Slager, and you said this nation does not want to see itself. Well, that, that's a deep <laughs> statement. What do you mean by that? I, I, I don't know if it meant to be deep, but, I mean, from Rodney King on to Ferguson to Cleveland, and now this one. And this one, I mean, King was a beating that everybody saw. Now this one, God running away, eight shots and more. It looked like he threw some evidence that the taser at him to, to, to cover up and give him a, a reason. Michael Slater. And, and, yes. And you're denying what you're seeing here. This, this is our country, people. Stay awake. Yeah. And, and that's a big part of it, too. Like this idea of videotape. And what's crazy about it, too, is that I've always been against the idea of affixing police officers with cameras. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'll tell you why I've always been against it. And I'm saying because emergency legislation was passed right after this happened in North Charleston. Now every cop is going to have, it's like Mm 10,000 of these things are going to be out there for people to attach to themselves. I've always been against it because, one, videotape didn't matter in the Eric Garner case. So Mm -hmm. it just makes me suspect about how helpful it would be. And, two, it makes me nervous about cops being able to shape the narratives of what they see since they're the ones with the cameras. Mm -hmm. And I don't trust them. Uh, And I don't know why anyone would trust them based on what we saw. But the thing that this case makes me a little bit like, uh, is like if things being without being videotaped, you don't even get right. a portion of the truth. Right. And it's it's a tragedy. It's like is the only way we'd be safe is if everybody is videotaping everybody else mm-hmm. at all times. Is that where we're at? Mm-hmm. I mean, if the police would stop arresting people for videotaping police officers, that'd be a good start. Yeah, not true in every wow. place. That's it's not a federal law. No, no, ma- no, no. It's, cities, it's a de facto sort of thing. Yeah. It's insane. Like the person who videotaped the killing of Eric Garner. Yes. Uh, was arrested or was indicted as well, which is a, a something unto itself. Well, look, we're going to be following this very closely. Yes, Folks out there, if you hear about any athletes saying or doing anything, tweet it to us at Edge of Sports. Um, I want to keep up with this. I want to make sure we're awake and looking at this, I'll be in the Bay Area next week, April 16th, Oakland Peace Center, 7 p.m. with Boots Riley from the Coup talking about sports, hip-hop, resistance. Uh, wow. it'll be, go, Dave. Go. Yeah, well, hopefully you guys can hold it down. For all the <laughs> right. folks here, we are out of here. Peace. Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com. 